All right, three, two, one. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest, a returning guest. His name is Ken Ami. He operates the truefreethinker.com website. He and I have known each other online for many years, going back to our mutual research into the West Memphis Three. And I've done a lot of interviews with him, at least five that are available on my YouTube channel at William Ramsey Investigates or William Ramsey. I have two YouTube channels. But he's just published a book just this month. The title of the book is Nephilim and Giants as Per Pop Researchers, a comprehensive consideration of the claims of I.D.E. Thomas, Chuck Missler, Dante Fortson, Derek Gilbert, Brian Godawa, Patrick Heron, Thomas Horn, Ken Johnson, Ellie Marzulli, Josh Peck, C.K. Quarterman, Steve Quayle, Rob Skiba, Gary Wayne, Jim Wynn, Will Hilson, et al., so it's a, a comprehensive list of names, but it's a comprehensive analysis as well. It's very detailed, referencing many of these works and many of their claims regarding Nephilim and Giants, and Ken makes his own uh, analysis and conclusion. Uh, so we're going to probably talk about some big words from manuetics, exegesis, comparative exegesis, things like that, but uh, Ken can get in there in that uh, material in greater detail. So Ken, are you there? Alan, it's a pleasure to be with you again. Awesome. Well, thanks for agreeing to the interview. It's great to talk with you. And for people who don't know your background or your writing, and you've written so many books, I mean, you've over 20 books right now, all very, very well researched. Um, can you talk a little bit about yourself and then what brought you to this particular topic? Oh, just a short biography, huh? Uh, <laughs> well, if, you, if it's possible, possible or plausible. Yeah. Well, one thing I say in my book is that um, the only difference between me and the pop researchers that I consider in my book is that they are pop and I am not. So um, I'm mostly focusing on independent researchers, and that's what I consider myself, except that they're popular and I'm not. So that's the only really big difference between us. Um, So, well... I'm not sure how far back you want me to go, but if you don't mind, I'll just focus upon um, my research of these issues. No problem. Yeah, so let me just give you a little background and how I got to write this book, which incidentally I wrote during the first few weeks of the stay-at-home order. (laughs) It just so happened that I had concluded my research and the conclusion of the research coincided with the beginning of the stay-at-home order. So here I went. I thought, well, now I have hours on end, and what am I going to do? So I just started pounding away at the keyboard, I mean, for just a ridiculous number of hours a day. And that's how I got it done uh, as far as in the written form in a relatively, relatively short amount. Amount of time, but the research behind it was just diving into the minutia and all the little details. And what I did for this book, I mean, you read the subtitle, those are only some of the authors I covered. There's many more. I plowed through about 80 books uh, specifically for this research, and that doesn't count the years of listening to their videos, reading their articles, and all of that stuff. So, what got me to write this particular book is. I thought to write about this topic, and I wrote a book called What Does the Bible Say About Nephilim and Giants? Uh, A styled Nephilology and Giantology. And I thought, well, I'm sure that's the only book I'm going to write about this issue. I mean, how much could you possibly write about it? And so in that book, I actually went a little bit beyond what the Bible said, and I included the issues of the claim that there's some kind of conspiracy involving the Smithsonian to hide, quote-unquote, giant skeletons. And then I provided many of the old newsletters and also the famous chart of giant skeletons uh, compiled by Mont Blanco curator, Mont Blanco Museum curator Joe Taylor. So I I threw in a bunch of other stuff in there because, again, I thought that'll probably be it for me. So I might as well put a bunch of stuff in one book. Although the focus of that one is definitely the biblical material. Well, then I ended up writing another book about this subject called um, 
uh, there was about encountering Nephilim and giants in extra biblical texts. So there you go. There was not only the Bible, but what do other ancient texts say about these issues? And so I thought, well, okay, there you go. Now I'm done. And then I thought, well, no, I'm not quite done. Then I, <laughs> then I wrote another one, uh, the scholarly academic Nephilim. Giants. So what do scholars have to say? And now I wrote, well, okay, if I covered the Bible, the ancient text, the scholars, how about the pop researchers? So these are people with um, mostly no credentials of which to speak, uh, but they are extremely popular teachers. And I thought, well, let's review what they have to say. So this is, depends how you count them, maybe my fourth or my sixth book on this issue, because I wrote a a book called On the Genesis Six Affairs, Sons of God, Angels or Not. And the topic there was who took which view of Genesis 6 historically. Uh, but I threw in a lot of statements about Nephilim and Giants because they were talking about that historically as well. And then, of course, I published a book on the Book of Enoch. Uh, it's called In Consideration of the Book. And I also dealt with that issue a bit in there. So, again, it depends how you. But, um, I didn't just come to this book as, hey, hey, everybody, here's what I think and what do I know. But that I've looked at the biblical material, extra biblical material, scholarly material, top level material. And one thing I like doing is not just being an armchair researcher, but I've actually had discussions with people who uh, spend a lot of their time teaching and discussing these things. So I've engaged dozens upon dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of people who talk about this stuff, just on the lay level, you know, website comments and all that. So that's the background I bring to it. So this, for this particular research, like I said, I plowed through 80 books and I ended up with 400 pages just worth of quotations. Because to me, it was very important, it always is, to present the information from the horse's mouth, right? Because if I don't do that, I know I'll come across as a horse's. And so regardless of what you think about what I have to say, at least you'll be able to get a very, very, very good insight into what these people are teaching. Right? Definitely. That's, I mean, that's works. one of the elements of your book is that it's very thorough quoting and referencing specific statements on those particular topics that you've broken down by chapter. And I know that you know from having written so much, particularly about Aleister Crowley, that um, it was like an enormous jigsaw puzzle I had to put together, right? Like when you're quoting Crowley on different topics, and then you have to write your narrative around his quotation, right? So that's what it was like for me, is Parts of the research were very enjoyable for me, and parts of it were just so grueling. I mean, just mind-numbing. And uh, figuring out how to set up my chapters, which quotation goes where, because in one statement, they might hit upon five different, maneuvering 400 pages worth of quotations was quite a task, let me tell you. I believe it. I believe it. And you kind of, I mean, you had to kind of define the terms because uh, so many of these different terms that are used in talking about Genesis 6, you know, are, they bleed over into another, right? Angels, demons, Nephilim, right. giants, right? So can you talk a little bit about that? And so that's one thing I found myself doing so much in the book that I hoped it wouldn't get annoying to the reader but I hope what it would do is to make them alert to that, okay, next time I hear anybody speak on these topics, I'm instantly gonna start thinking in terms of, well, wait a minute, how come you jump into, let's just pull one out of the hat. How come you, you're jumping into a discussion of giants, but you never defined the term? How come you're talking about something without telling us what you're talking about? And then also, how come, you are shifting the meaning of giant 
as you're going along talking, you, you, you mean different things by it. I can tell from the context, but, but how come you're just moving the goalposts, see? And so that's what I, I hope you caught in the book that I talk about dots and I talk about lines. So the dots are like, the, are how those dots are connected. And I point out a lot of my problems are not with the dots, but they're with the lines. It's like you're connecting two dots and then three and four and five, but it's the lines you're using to connect those dots that are causing the problems. Right. And I saw that you quoted Robert Anton Wilson's statement that yes. if you give anybody a, a thick enough pencil and a map, they can connect dots to anything or something. Yeah. I don't yeah. Verbatim. Uh, yeah. I, I thought some people would get a kick out of the fact that I'm quoting him particularly but when Thanks someone so. makes a good point, you can't deny it. So what he said is that if you use a pencil that's thick enough and a map that's small enough, and you can connect to any points. Right. right? And, I mean, I think it's important to reference him because he was probably one of the early kind of para, parapolitical researchers because he was going through all these letters, paranoid letters that were sent to Playboy and, you know, really researching all that conspiracy conspiratainment or conspiratorial knowledge from, you know, what, 70s and 80s, I think, when he worked at Playboy. And so he was really one of the pre-internet, one of these people who saw all those things, and then he codified them in these, you know, semi-fictional novels or books. Yes, semi, okay, I don't want to traipse off into, okay. uh, <laughs> into speaking about him, but unfortunately, he kind of became that which he sought to expose, right? Because you're right. He ended up saying, look, some of what I write is true and some of it isn't, and it's up to you to figure it out. It's like, well, I don't care to become a Wilsonian scholar. I'm not going to devote my life to plowing through your books to see what's true or isn't, you know, as much insight as there might be in there. And um, there is some use, of course, as is there with anything that these pop claiming, but how much time do I want to devote to some guy who's purposefully mixing fact and fiction? It, right, I, I personally find, I personally just find it annoying. Right, but I think, <laughs> that, I mean, I think that it's important, I mean, you can draw a uh, comparison between Wilson and some of what is what taking is place in this pop, kind of pop research into this subject. Would you agree with that or would you uh, dispute that? You cut out at the beginning of that sentence, but I think what you're getting at is one of the chapters that I have, which is about the works that some of these researchers have written, so that there is this almost invisible line between what they do as fictional writers and what they do when they claim to be doing theology that's real. Right. Right. So that's where um, I end up just thinking, well, I would wonder if so many of these researchers also end up writing fiction based on their research because their research is essentially fiction to begin with. So it lends itself over so easily to do fiction. And so don't get me wrong. Um, if you listen to any of these people, they are absolutely fascinating. They're engaging. They've obviously done a tremendous amount of, but like I said, it's the, the the lines via which they connect dots. And those lines can be based, you know, on their worldview, their philosophy, or in this case, their theology. And so this all becomes um, a worldview, a hermeneutic, really, talking about um, how to interpret. So that's why I began with that quotation from Steve Quayle, which is the understanding of the Nephilim is the Rosetta Stone for understanding all of scripture. And then you, you probably picked up on how Rob Skiba had quoted Quayle another time when he made a similar statement, but talked about how it's also the way to understand history. Okay. So, right. Like he had, like Skiba said it was like the most key thing Yes, and had all of these other elements of the Bible based on Nephilim. Nephilim is almost kind of like an ancient aliens kind of approach where everything's ancient aliens. Well, for Skiba, it seemed like it was the um, Nephilim.
I could not hear anything you're saying right now. Sorry, William, but if you can hear me. I, I hear you. I'm here. Okay, now. To... Now I can. Okay, sorry about that. I was on mute. So, so yeah, that's that's the, the one of the main issues is that um, it becomes literally a worldview, and so they're going to take the concept of nephilim and giants, and and which attached to it are issues of demons and angels, and they're not only going to interpret the whole Bible through it, but they're going to interpret all the human history. So. What some of these researchers say basically is if you watch the show Ancient Aliens, just remove the word alien, insert the word Nephilim, and you basically have what they're talking about, right. which is something there's something for which they're criticized also. And so then you get into what I talked about in the intro, which is you, you basically end up with two main camps, which is one camp that are Bible believing Christians, but they say, look, uh, there was nothing paranormal involved in Genesis 6. And so this whole um, pop research review of Nephilim and Giants is totally bunk. And so what happens is the more that the pop researchers do what they do, the more that the other camp wants to just absolutely ignore them and reject them or debunk them. And so the other camp is the view taken by the top researchers, which is basically that Nephilim and giants and all this stuff has to do with everything, has to do with the whole entire Bible and has to do with all of history. And and in prophecy and in future events, correct? I mean, well, that, that's, yeah, that's one of the main points is it becomes an eschatology, so a view of the end times. And so it becomes absolutely all-encompassing. And so the more they do that, the other camp withdraws from them. The more the other camp withdraws from them, the more they do it. And you have basically two extremes. Right. Now, I found that in my research, I ended up at, right in the middle of the two. And so then I get beat up by both sides, but I couldn't help it. It's not like I, I set out to find a middle way to say, can't we all just go along, kumbaya, and all that. It's that where I ended up. Right. So, yeah, if, if we want to just give a succinct view of the pop researchers. Um, yeah, I think that's a great idea. I, yeah, I didn't know who I.D.E. Thomas was, and I didn't know of his influence. Maybe that's a good starting point for that. Right. So one thing I tried to do is to put together a rudimentary timeline of just the modern day focus on this issue of Genesis 6. And I came to just find that uh, Jim Wilhelmson, who wrote uh, Beyond Science Fiction, he claims that in the 70s, he started talking about the Genesis 6 affair, as I term it, uh, in relation to ufology. Now, that was quite a long time ago, what, a half century. And so I don't think anything was recorded. I don't think anything was written down, but that's what he claimed. I.D.E. Thomas published a book called The Omega Conspiracy, Satan's Last Assault on God's Kingdom. That was 1986. And essentially, Thomas laid out all that which follows. It's really that simple. Any one of these pop researchers can be traced back to Thomas because he basically laid out everything that they're teaching. And so from there on... And that, just to interrupt, sorry, but I mean, it was like the post-flood Nephilim, the genetic manipulation, um, angel view. So all of these views that he had kind of seeded all of these... Uh, people who followed after him. Would you agree with that? Yes, definitely. Yeah, let, let me touch upon that in a sec. 
the third okay. notable person is Chuck Missler. So he was so well known, so popular that in 1997, he published a book called Alien and Missler is really responsible for the mass popularization of the pop view of Nephilim and giants and all of that. Just because he, he was so well known. Uh, so basically, at least in verifiable form, you have Thomas in the mid 80s, you have Missler in the late 90s, and uh, thereafter, you have, um, like I said, everyone else is just repeating them. You also have Charles de Loach, who in 1995 published a book called Giants, a Reference Guide from History, the Bible, and Recorded Legend. I don't know how popular that was, but um, definitely Missler, uh, I think, was just the most popular teacher on the subject. And unfortunately, these guys, um, they did a really great job, for the most part, in discussing angels. and what angels have to do with all the level errors that just keep on being repeated. So that's a big, big problem. So basically, in Genesis 6, you have the sons of God coming to the daughters of men, and they have offspring. Okay, so um, the fascinating thing about Genesis 6, within this context, is that within four verses, you have a tremendous amount of material to deal with because you got to figure out who are the sons of God, who are the daughters of men, and then who are the Nephilim, when did they live, what did they do? <laughs> and it becomes a really, really big issue. In fact, a set of issues. So the first thing is who are the sons of God? And I can tell you that historically, the majority, the original, uh, the traditional view, amongst the earliest Jews and Christians alike for centuries was the angel view, the sons of God are angels. Now, to, to me as a researcher, there's a distinction between whether you uh, like that or not, or, and that it's a fact. It is a historical fact. There's no question about it. W whether you prefer it be different or you disagree, that's the secondary issue. That is a fact that the earliest Jews and Christians alike agreed on that. And by the way, when Jews and Christians agree on anything, probably should pay attention to that. Yeah, it's such a rarity, right? <laughs> um, and so, okay, you can definitely make biblical arguments in both directions. Um, I primarily like to go to Job. Um, because he makes three references, one of which is that the sons of God witnessed, at the very least, the creation of the earth. So there's no way that they were human. So anyhow, then what you end up with is angels mating with humans and having these, what then we can call hybrids, because they're half angel and half human. Well, Jesus said that uh, angels don't get married, but he stated no such thing. He specified that he was talking about the angels of God in heaven. So those were loyal angels who did not, as Jude put it, leave their own first estate, right? And that's why these angels come to be considered sinners or fallen, because they did that which they were not supposed to do. So anyhow, then you get to that. Their offspring are called Nephilim. And... In the Bible, it's actually extremely simple. They were born and existed pre-flood. Only eight survived the flood, plus animals. So then, logically, that's the end of them. End of story. End of the story of the Nephilim, right? They existed so pre-flood. Yeah, so you would think. Yeah, uh, they existed pre-flood. The last of them... would have drowned in the flood. That's how she wrote. Now, this is especially so if you think that one of the main reasons for the flood was God wanting to be rid of Nephilim. I mean, the text doesn't state that, but that is a very pop teaching, a very popular teaching. So I'm not sure how 
you're going to claim that God wanted to be rid of them. That's why he sent the flood, but then they just came right back. That that just strikes me as an implying that God failed. So how could they have come back? Well, then you have theories about that. But that's just step one is, well, God wanted to be rid of them and flood the entire planet, and they just figured out a way to come back. They thought of a loophole that God must have missed. That, that's a problem right there. Right. Uh, and so you end up with a claim of, well, let me just back up one step. So will that refer to Nephilim? Okay, no problem. And I mean Nephilim proper. I don't mean um, where the root word occurs because the root word is nafal, so that means fall or to fall. And okay, you can find that as a root word, but I'm talking about the actual usage of Nephilim. I'm going to read you every single verse in the Bible that talks about it, so I hope you don't mind a five-hour show here. Uh, <laughs> I don't. Go for it. Yeah. So Genesis 6-4, and I'm going to just read the KJV and we'll have to talk about why it opts to use a word that really doesn't belong there. Okay. It says the, there were giants in the earth in those days and also after that when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, the same became mighty men who were of old men of renown. Okay, 13, 33. And there we saw the giants sons of Anak would come of the giants and we were in our own sights as grasshoppers and so we were in their sight and well that's it right, numbers 13 33 and uh, Genesis, Genesis 6, 6 4. 4 right so you got that's two it right. two not even two texts really just two verses two and verses. it it is astonishing that from two verses have come millennia worth of literature. I mean, millennia to the point that here we are talking about it still. It blows my mind, really, that that could happen. But see, so like I said before, one camp could say, look, that's versus there's not much there. Let's just move on and ignore it or just claim there was nothing there. Are normal, and the other camp just builds literally a worldview and a theology. Oh, you, yeah, out of these two theology verses. and eschatology, because right. that what happened out of these two verses is going to influence future events. And that the remnant, I mean, at least one pop pop uh, researcher has you know made the claim that this will infuse uh, these two verses and the offspring of whoever the you know what their interpretation of sons of God is will uh, influence future events. Right. So that's what we're getting at is from these two verses, what we end up with is angels mating with women. They give birth to giants. Hopefully you're not going to ask what giants means. Uh, you're just going to kind of be fascinated and, and keep listening to the narrative. I'm, I'm going to accept uh, the generally understood yeah. definition of giant. Okay, don't then get me back to that in a second because okay. you will okay. find it's not that simple. Okay, that's simple. Uh, so then these Nephilim either survive the flood or return somehow, and so they populate the Canaanite, the Canaan region, so where Israel and thereabouts that's where they're living. That's what the Israelites encountered battling. That's who they are um, commanded to wipe out completely. Uh, you have a few remnants here and there. And then in the end times, uh, somehow they either keep surviving or they return in the eschaton and the end times, which biblically has already started 2,000 years ago, by the way. But in some future event, they're supposed to come back and they're supposed to, well... <sighs> I'm not sure how else to put it, but 
just think of the wildest sci-fi tales you can imagine, and that's pretty much what you're dealing with is uh, transhumanism, genetic manipulation, you know, really, really, really tall beings uh, with, uh, you know, endued with satanic power and weaponry and technology and UFOs and you name it. You just throw it all into a giant grab bag. Right. That's and basically the pop view. Right. And well, can you describe what that... And incidentally, um, pre-flight, yeah, um, some of them throw in the gap theory. So maybe uh, Satan was the rule of, of, of Mars and they had high tech on Mars. And then when the fall happened, there was this, you know, well, before the fall in the garden, there was a fall of Lucifer. There was a giant battle on Mars. That's how it got destroyed. Um, then there was uh, ufology events, right? So um, spacecraft flying around the Earth pre-flood and they were genetically manipulating humans maybe in uh, that was all sort of related to the gap theory on, for, on which i have a whole chapter there right. but then you you end up having the angels producing nephilim and you kind of just go running from there on to the all the way to the eschaton right and i mean some of these pop theologists they, they speculate that these nephilim survived the flood so they contradict scripture that only eight people survived the flood and said that somehow they've returned right i mean isn't that isn't that some of these well what ended up happening is so yes the issue is you have one verse that's pre-flood and you have one verse that's post-flood so well you have to find a way to have the nephilim existing post-flood and so since the bible doesn't say anything about it you're going to be forced to literally invent stories about how that might have happened but let me just touch upon an issue first because if you noticed in genesis 6 which is pre-flood it states that they were on the earth in those days and also after that right gotcha. Okay, so we're constantly, constantly, constantly told that that's talking about the flood. In those days before the flood and after that, after the flood. But there's a few problems. First of all, that verse doesn't say a single word about the flood. It doesn't mention it. And in fact, the flood is not mentioned for the very first time until 13 verses later, verse 13. So you can't really read 13 verses past verse 4 and then loop around and use the flood to misinterpret verse 4. It doesn't say anything about that. But it does say those days and after that. So when on earth was that? Because you can't know when after that was until you know when those days were. Well, but the verse just told you. In those days and after that, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, they bear children to them. Well, when was that? Well, I don't know. But verse 1 says, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, the daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair and wives. Okay, so when were those days? Well, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and the sons of it, it could have been as early as when Adam and Eve children started having children. So in other words, it's telling you right there in that verse, you don't have to pull it a word from its context. You don't have to wonder. It's telling you right there, those days and after that, when the sons of God came to die, those days and also after that. So Nephilim were around when they first did that, and then also after they first did that. But it's all pre-flood. That's the point. It's all pre-flood. Because <laughs> right. So I mean, it's all pre-flood. So how do you explain post-flood? I mean, some of these people are saying, aren't some of them arguing that the giants, uh, such as Goliath, were Nephilim? Well, okay. If let's go there next. Okay. You, you okay. lead the way. Lead the way. Right. Because we need to discuss the word giant, and then we talk about who was a giant. Okay. But yeah, okay. So then, 
Now, let, let me put this carefully. The word Nephilim appears again post-flood. Okay, now there's a difference between a reference to them and them actually being on the ground, actually existing. That's the key. Is because I'm often told, well, Moses said they were there post-flood. Well, hold on. Who said it? Well, well, the Bible says it. Oh, the Bible said, well, God inspired it. Okay, well, wait a minute. You need to think about who said it, why they said it, how it was received, and what were the results. You need to dig into the narrative to, to, to think about how to understand what is being said. Because it is most certainly not Moses who told us that. Moses wrote down what somebody said, in other words. So, for instance, when the Bible records statements, state, states in <laughs> statements made by, by Satan, then it's true that he said those things, but we should not believe it because he's the father of lies, right? In this case, who said that? Who referenced Well, it was uh, 10 of the 12 spies that were sent to land. So I'll just pull out this really quickly because it's really detailed, but I'll just give you the bottom line. So the narrative is Moses writing down what happened. We sent, they sent them into the land. The 12 spies returned. They, they give a good report of the land. They show the fruit of the land. They talk about how there's various people groups in the land, Amalekites, Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, Canaanites, and, um, in, and the Anakim. Now, for some strange reason, they forget to mention the most notable people, which are the Nephilim. That they somehow forget, let's say, because they don't mention. Gotcha. They talk about how all the people of the land are strong and how they have fortified cities that are well protected, which of course would have been very intimidating to, you know, wilderness dwellers, itinerant dwellers, uh, itinerant uh, wilderness dwellers who are living in tents. All of a sudden, they're seeing these cities that are well fortified, very intimidating. So, they start telling the people, we're not going to be able to do this. We're not going to be able to go in there and conquer, right? Which is what God commanded them to do. So then Caleb and Joshua siding with him start saying, no, no, no. We're going to be able to do this. Don't worry about it, right? <laughs> um, Caleb stilled the people, said, let us go up at once and says it. Now, at this point, Moses... throws in a comment, which is that of the land, which they had searched onto the children of Israel, saying, the land through which we have gone is the land that eateth up its inhabitants thereof. Okay, wait a minute. So, they presented a report, and it was accepted as is. Now, then, sorry, then they start dissuading the people. Caleb encourages them. Then we're told they present an evil report. And the first thing they do is contradict themselves. First, they spoke well of the land. Now they, spilled, they speak ill of the land. So that's self-contradictory right there. Then they say, all the people we saw are men of great stature. Well, guess what? Before, they had just said all the people there are strong. Now, all of a sudden, they're all of great stature. And then they say, there we saw the giants. And the word there is Nephilim the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. Where is Nephilim? And so, their sight. So, all of a sudden, before they listed all the people they saw in the land, all of a sudden, oh yeah, gosh, you know, we forgot the most notable people. Now we're going to claim that we saw Nephilim. We're going to claim the Anakim are related to Nephilim. And we're going to claim that Nephilim are very, 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 very tall. So to me, uh, the narrative is pretty clear. These guys are scared. So they 
started saying, we can't do what God commanded us to do. Caleb says, yes, we can. Moses tells us they put, they reported an evil report. And the evil report is a train wreck. I mean, you're a lawyer. Would you believe these guys are contradicting themselves? They're making up stuff they never said before. Oh. And right. None of it makes sense. No, it's not consistent. It's not in the least bit consistent. If anything, if they had seen this, that would have been the first thing they mentioned. They would have come running back into camp saying, guess what? We just saw there's Nephilim drafting. Hey, look at this fruit. I mean, who cares about the fruit at that point? But um, let me touch upon a slightly more detailed issue in terms of textual criticism. Okay. So obviously, they're contradicting themselves. They're making up stuff they didn't say before. And what is the result? They're rebuked for it. They're flat out rebuked for what they said. Now, the top claim is that they were rebuked before because they discouraged the people. But guess what? The discouragement happened before we were told that the report was evil. So you, you can't claim that. It's the, it's the content of the report that is evil or false, obviously. Also, because they claim this, that there's post-flood Nephilim, they claim that they're related to Anakim, and they claim they're very, very, very tall. Well, guess what? That is stated nowhere else in the whole entire Bible. So they made three claims about which the whole rest of the Bible knows nothing, nothing. And so that's why I make a big point of this verse in my book, because when it comes down to it, the whole entire uh, pop researcher theory is based on one verse. And then that verse is used to misinterpret many other verses. Okay, now the the textual issue is that if you look at this verse in the Septuagint, the LXX, the Greek translation of the Bible from a few centuries uh, BC, this verse has them claiming that the people of the land are of great stature, but nothing about Nephilim, nothing about Anakim relation to Nephilim. That's missing. It's a good indication that this may be what scholars call a gloss, which is something that was not originally in the text, but somehow got added to it. And the fact is, if you look at Deuteronomy 128, that is when Caleb is relating this event. And he says, yeah, they said that the people of the land were a great statue. But guess what? He doesn't say a single word about Nephilim, no relation to Anakim, nor the Nephilim being very, very tall. It's just absolutely absent. And in fact, these spies contradict Moses, Caleb, Joshua, and God, because all of them say, yeah, there were Anakim in the land, but none of them say a single word about Nephilim or relation to Nephilim or unusual height. None of them ever. It just doesn't exist in the whole rest of the Bible. Right, all these detailed accounts from kings and all this other stuff. And yeah. Well, that's the point is how many times in the Bible are we told about the people in the land and the people around the land and of battles and of hand-to-hand combat and of end times prophecy and there's not a single word about Nephilim in there anywhere, period. It doesn't exist. And so this was just a fear-mongering, scary rebuke, and they just made up a don't-go-in-the-woods type of tall tale, really is what it comes down to. Yeah, I agree. Right, I, yeah. But then, okay, so you wanted to talk about um, Goliath and Og, King Og of Bashan. Yes. Well, First thing I would say is why? Why bother talking about those guys? You only want to talk about them because they're reportedly very, very, very tall. But now, since Numbers 13.33 is unreliable, then we're left with one single reliable verse about Nephilim in the Bible, and that's Genesis 6.4, and it does not give us a physical description of Nephilim. So there's absolutely no reason to think that they were even one inch taller than average. So that forget the whole issue of being unusually tall. That's now removed from the 
purview of Nephilim research. We're all about that. But <laughs> the problem is that some English versions render, you can't even say translate, they render the word Nephilim as giants. Okay, and they get that from the Septuagint because the Septuagint renders Nephilim as gigantes. So now what you're supposed to do is when you hear the word giants, you're supposed to invoke, um, you know, modern day fairy tales about uh, super gigantic beings or, you know, let me not be that unfair. Let me be a little more kind and say, okay, for some odd reason, you're going to believe the rebuke spies in Numbers 1333. So that's where you're going to get your idea that they were so incredibly tall. Right. I mean, in a, yeah, I think that I mean, you and I had talked this about it. Do that. Sorry. Sorry. I was just going to touch upon a, another aspect of it, which is the fact is the Septuagint renders three Hebrew words as gigantes. And so most English versions will also render three or at least two Hebrew words as giants. And to me, it's always a terrible idea to render more than one word with one single word, because then what happens is it just causes confusion if you're not reading for context. So the Septuagint will render Nephilim as gigantes and also Rephaim as gigantes and also Iborim as gigantes. And so if you just take that over into the English, then people are just chasing um, a, an English word around the Hebrew Bible. And so the word giant becomes dots. And then they start connecting the dots through their lines, right? We're back to that. But um, the history of the word gigantes can be pretty detailed. I mean, I wrote about it, but just really quick. It's a term that literally means earthborn. And the reason that a lot of people claim that Nephilim were very, very tall is not just from Numbers 1333, but because in Greek mythology, the Titans are also referred to as gigantes. And therefore, if Titans very, very tall, then Nephilim very, very, very tall, which could be. But there may be other reasons that word was used. And unfortunately, we can't ask the translators of the Septuagint, but what if it's because uh, the Titans were also uh, tyrannical? That's the correlation. Or what if it's because they too were hybrids? What if that's the correlation? In other words, you can't myopically say, I want a tale about that. No, you have to think about other ways that they might have been correlated. And so the point is, I don't have a problem using a Bible with the word giant because I still read for context. And if I see giants pre-flood and giants post-flood, I have to conclude that the ones post-flood are different pre-flood. You would have to because the ones pre-flood are gone, right? So what happens to get from Genesis 6 to Numbers 13 is basically two main camps developed in the pop research field. And one is the theory by L.A. Marzulli and one is a theory by Rob Skiba. So Marzulli claims that post-flood fallen angels, either more angels fell or the same fallen angels were still uh, running around. And they just came around back and did it all again. They made it with her. And they might have done that numerous times. Now, Rob Kiva came along and said, now, wait a minute. There's no biblical evidence for that whatsoever. And he's right. So he says what happened is Nephilim genetics survived within uh, the daughters of Noah's sons. That's how they came back. It was genetic. Of course, there's no biblical evidence for that whatsoever either. So it's kind of interesting that you have 
main camp that developed specifically to tell the other one that they don't have any biblical evidence, but he doesn't have any biblical evidence either. In other words, they're both inventing stories just to make Numbers 1333 reliable because they believe it. Because they believe it, they are forced to invent some way. I mean, what I mean, that's kind of mythologizing. Like we're kind of coming to an end. I think we're close to fifty minutes. Uh, what do you think the consequences of this type of biblical? kind of uh you know mythologizing is what what do you think that that what do you think that what it what's happened with all these types of books and researchers okay if you don't mind i'm going to take one extra minute cuz i just take re- as much time as you want yeah we'll, just we'll to go su- super quickly through goliath um the fact is he was a refa so he was not a nephil nor could he have been cuz there's no such thing as post flood nephilim so however tall he was, and I go through that in the book, it's not relevant. He, uh, he was a Philistine. They are a subgroup of Anakim. They are a subgroup of Rephaim. And who were Rephaim? Just good old-fashioned human beings, some of whom were tall and some of whom were very tall or of great stature. But just like giants, that is a generic and a subjective term especially when you're comparing the Hebrews who in those days were five feet even or five three, and that was males. So women were even shorter. Uh, then King Og of Bashan, we have no idea how tall he was. We're just told of the size of his bed, and he was a sovereign. He was a rich guy, and who knows why he had a giant bed. Maybe it was because he was 12, 13 feet tall, but maybe not. And in fact, what has been found through archaeology is that there were ritual beds that they were meant not meant to be slept on. They were supposed to represent where the male deity and the female deity populated. So most likely this had nothing to do with him sleeping at night. It was a ritual, ritual object. And he was a Rapha also. So again, irrelevant issue of Nephilim. So now, gotcha. what happens with all of this? Well, um, it gets tied into... Um, okay, let me put it this way. So if you established a quote-unquote ministry, William, based on discussing Nephilim and giants, what would you have to do every day or every week? Would you have anything to do? Well, if I really wanted to base it on it, I'd have to show their impact and importance over everything in the Old and New Testament. Right, which you cannot... viably do but okay so that's what happens is now you have to start just pulling stuff together you have to collect all the dots and start linking lines between them to make something out of something that's not really there yeah you're back at ancient ancient aliens again exactly and so what happens is you need to somehow fluff it up and puff it up and so you get you say guess what uh the whole issue of ufology that's now in my purview also that has to do with nephilim and, and guess what? Cryptozoology, all those hybrid creatures, that's also part of Nephilim. So that's in my And guess what? Eschatology, transhumanism, genetic manipulation, all of it, all of it is now part of what I do. That's all within my purview. And that's how these things become such fascinating stuff to listen to. And I'm not denying that. Their claims are absolutely fascinating and very entertaining. But my question is is it true and so this becomes an, a view of the future and time uh, where again the bible doesn't say a single word about any of it you still there offspring or not and so if you uh, recall my chapter nephil kampf recall that one well i saw it at the end i didn't read through the yeah whole thing. okay 
Yeah, you're definitely going to want to because, and I don't blame you, by the way. I know you had to plow through this long book in a short period of time. But basically, uh, what's becoming really popular is to claim that Nephilim are already here. And don't you ask me where they are or how to identify them, because guess what? They're no longer being birthed as very, very, very tall people. Um, they look exactly like your average human being. So they're just waiting to reveal okay, themselves. Now, to me, it's incredibly dangerous to claim that human beings are not human beings. Right. So basically, they're pointing at human beings. And guess what? That's not actually a human. That's a half demonic um, hybrid. That to me is incredibly dangerous. And so what these, some of these uh, top researchers are setting up is not just that we battle against, um, not against flesh and bone, but we battle against spiritual forces. They're saying, no, we will have an armed conflict in the end against these hybrid Nephilim that, guess what, again, look exactly like human beings, uh, which to me is just so very dangerous. Um, I, I dread to think what could happen if these guys ever become popular enough to start real movements. Um, so I don't want to go too far with that, but I would just only say it is really disturbing when they start telling us that your next door neighbor could be a, you know, demonically right. enhanced hybrid. And guess what? You know how to tell? Because they look just like you and me. It's, it's pretty stunning. It's pretty shocking. Yeah, it's, uh, it's very dangerous. That's, I, I didn't know that, that was, uh, that's where all of this is leading to. But also it's leading people away from a true understanding of the Bible. It's adding things and mythologizing. And it is. It's extra, it's extra biblical. So especially on something that has such a, a very small amount of, uh, you know, references, just like you said, you've got Numbers 1333, Genesis 6-4, that's it. And that's what you're that's spending, it. that's what you're building your whole theology on. But let, let me, uh, let me, just touch upon that really quick because for instance Flavius Josephus does does state that some of the events recorded by the Greeks in their mythology were really about the Nephilim and well maybe that is the case in this way so perhaps after the dispersion of humanity throughout the world after the Tower of Babel event what was then shared history from pre-flood times then became myth and legend as time went on and details were just changed here and there. So, okay, maybe there is something to some of the myths that record actual events in pre-flood times, however much they have been uh, peppered with, with hyperbole, maybe. But um, to then take that into post-flood times and the future, that, that's where the real problem is because there's no biblical indication of that. And then you do have some extra biblical text where you do get um, Nephilim being very, very, very tall and all of this stuff. But my issue would be why? Why were they writing about that, especially during the Second Temple period, which is roughly, you know, with the half millennia before Christ? Well, is there anything you'd like to add uh, to sum up? Reasons. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we don't know if they were writing hoaxes. We don't know if they were writing historical fiction. We don't know what they were doing. We just know what they claimed. But then we need to judge it against what we know to be uh, the facts of the matter. Gotcha. And for that matter, the only place you get post-flood Nephilim, even in the extra-biblical books, is uh, First Enoch, a.k.a. Ethiopic Enoch, where they only survive in spirit, so they cannot be quote-unquote giants. And then in Jubilees, where they only make it to the time of Noah's grandsons. Well, even those apocryphal texts don't really help you out. So anyhow, anything, yeah. yes, Go ahead, please uh, continue. Yeah, no, just the bottom line is... You know, I wrote a book where I'm naming names, and I stayed up front. To me, this is not a clash of personalities. This isn't 
uh, me putting these guys down and making it about how I think I'm also smart. And um, I give these guys a lot of credit, but then I say, well, here's the issues that I'm finding in their claims. So let's focus on the facts and let's look at the issues instead of saying, well, how dare you tell me that my favorite researcher is wrong? See, to me, it's not about that. And that's why I threw the line in there that I coined, which is sometimes when we sharpen iron with iron, someone tends to get cut. You know, it's just a fact. Uh, my focus was the claims and whether they are valid or not. It wasn't just to start a ruckus or to, you know, uh, throw around the put downs or uh, anything like that about personalities. No, but I think that your inquiry is very important. You know, what's the legitimacy of all of this uh, kind of mythology? And I always go back to the term mythologizing of uh, the Bible. I think it, uh, it's definitely something people should be aware of and, uh, you know, look into. So I definitely recommend this book. Again, the title is Nephilim and Giants as per Pop Researchers. Ken Ami, Ken A-M-M-I, published within the last month and uh, available on his website. It's the best place to buy all of his books truefreethinker.com. Highly recommend people go check that out. Look at all the the real thorough, exhaustive research that Ken has done on so many of these issues. It's uh, it's really very thoroughly researched and I, I highly recommend all his books. So Ken, thank you very much for the interview. Thank you for having me. All right, cool.